If you are visiting us, my name is uh, Pastor Mark Toon. I work here, and uh, I'm glad to bring God's Word to us today. Before I begin the message, uh, I want to share a little bit about something coming up. Believe it or not, we are near the end of our journey through the Bible, which we have called The Story. It began in September. It's going to wrap up in June. We are only five weeks away from the end of it, if you can hardly believe it, right? So for those of you who have been diligent and studying the Word all along, following along with us, uh, congratulations. Thank you uh, for that. But I want to look ahead to our summer uh, program uh, a little bit. We're going to have a summer series coming up. We're calling it Fearless Q, Dare to Ask. And we are going to take 12 of the toughest questions that a Christian can ever be faced with, and we're going to preach on them. And uh, the good news is you are going to provide us those questions. So I want you to take the blue sheet that you'll find in your bulletin, if you would. You can pull those out. Wave it at me so we know what we're talking about, that you're really paying attention to me. Good. Uh, That's the one. So I want you to, what I would love you to do is, uh, before the end of the service, uh, write down the thorniest question that you can imagine. The one that you would love to stump your pastor with. Write that down. And then when you go back, there will be baskets, I hope, back there. I don't see them, but I'm sure that the ushers are going to take care of it. That's awesome. Uh, Put it in the basket. We're going to tally those over the next couple of weeks. And then the top 12 questions that are listed uh, will form our sermon series. And that's what we're going to be preaching on this summer. So we're going to tackle it head on. It will be, a, I think, a very provocative uh, series. It will be a great one for you to bring your non-church, perhaps non-Christian friends to. Because often it is these very questions that keep people away from uh, Christ and from God. So bring them along. I think it will make for some provocative fodder for our life groups this summer as well. It's also going to be fun for me because um, um, my daughter, who is starting her last year of seminary next fall back at Gordon-Conwell's under the care of our presbytery, she's going to be one of our preachers. So for the first time, Rachel is going to preach to her home church, and she's kind of terrified of it. Uh, but uh, I'm excited for it, and it'll be August 13th and 14th, and, uh, and it'll be a chance for you to see one of the daughters of this church coming back, and, uh, and I know you'll enjoy it too. I'm sure I will. So I'm going to give her the toughest question that we come up with. She's so darn smart. Well, we are continuing in our journey through um, what we're calling the story. It's been a a journey that started way back in September. And if you can believe it, we are only five uh, weeks away from being done with this journey. And during that time, we have been looking for what we've called the scarlet thread. By now, if you've been at, with us at all, you know that what, what that is are the, the references, the, the glimpses, the whispers, the whiffs that we have of Jesus that begin in the earliest part of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, we begin to see an indication of, of, of a promised one who would come one day. And God promised again and again, repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send an anointed one. I'm going to send to you a Savior. And I'm going to restore my broken creation and draw my people back to myself. That was the promise of God. But it went on for centuries and centuries, this expectation. And it was unfulfilled. The people waited and waited and and no Messiah. But finally, three weeks ago, we opened the passage of Scripture where the Messiah finally comes. We called it at last because at last this uh, long-awaited Messiah, this, this Savior had come to the world. 
And as we saw, Jesus hit the ground running. Amazing Jesus, right? Amazing preacher, amazing teacher, amazing healer and exorcist and raiser from the dead and a doer of miracles. He hit the ground running. And the people were drawn to him. He was surrounded by folks and all of them were pointing and whispering essentially the same thing. I think that's the Messiah. He could be the Messiah. I'm sure he must be the Messiah. And on and on it went. The people couldn't get enough of Jesus until the crazy talk started. Because about the time that Jesus was at his height of popularity... Then he began to talk about the fact that he was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to be arrested by his enemies and he was going to be tortured and he was going to be killed. And if that didn't uh, throw a chill on the party, I, I don't know what did. That's not what messiahs do. Messiahs are conquerors. Messiahs are victorious. They are uniters of the, of the people. And so the people had a hard time with it and the disciples didn't like it. The disciples didn't get it. And pretty soon the, the crowds began to peter out. But Jesus never let up. He went on again and again, repeating the same thing more and more clearly. He said, this is the road that is ahead. I'm going to die. And I just want you to know that that is the plan. When a time comes, I don't want you to be surprised. I was thinking about plans this week. Plan A, plan B, A lot of us have backup plans. I didn't really realize how many I had until I started thinking of this idea of backup plans. Um, I have a, my plan A for my computer is that it doesn't crash. Plan B is carbonite, right? Plan A last winter during the worst of the windstorms was that trees would not fall on my roof. But plan B was my, uh, my chainsaw uh, gassed up right outside the front door along with a pile of tarps. Plan A was, is that power will not go out, but, but my plan B is that I've installed an awesome generator. Although I gotta say, I miss the days that we used to light candles and, and sit by the fireplace and play cribbage in the dark. I, that was kinda cool. I don't miss having rotten food in the fridge, though that part I don't miss at all. Plan A, no earthquake. We're not gonna be hit by an earthquake, but plan B, just in case, I got a big old clean garbage can full of supplies and clothes and food. Although, as I thought about it when I was writing this, I haven't checked that garbage can in about eight years. So I'm kind of afraid. I think it's going to be a moldering mess when I pull the lid off. So I'm a little afraid of what I'm going to see. But you get the point. Plan A is what we're hoping for, but every prudent person has in place a backup plan, a plan B. Here's the question for you this morning. The crucifixion of Jesus, was it plan A? Or plan B. I think a lot of people, maybe even Christians, imagine that the cross was a backup plan. It was an audible that was called by God at the scrimmage line when he realized that the game wasn't going very well. We, we imagine perhaps that God kind of wrings his divine hands and said, oh my, the whole world is in rebellion. What am I going to do about this sin thing? I guess I could send my son to die on the cross as a sacrifice. I could do that, I suppose. We may not be so bald in the way that we express it, but I wonder how many of us kind of review the cross of Jesus as plan B. I want to make this as clear as I know how to. The crucifixion of Jesus, the death of the Son of God, was never plan B. 
It was always plan A. It was not a last second Hail Mary that, that the father threw in hopes that things might work out. The sacrificial atoning work of Jesus on the cross was always, from the beginning, the plan, his plan. And I, I want to prove that to you this morning. Friday morning, I had my sermon all written. And as I was praying about it, I realized that this wasn't at all what the Lord wanted me to do. So I started all over. I threw that sermon out and I started all over. Because I really believe that what God wanted me to do was to lay out the plan for you as we find it from the beginning of Scripture right to the present. So I started all over and that's what we're going to do today. I want to show you 16 ways in which the plan is presented in the Old Testament. 16 strands of the scarlet thread that are woven together to lead us to this moment. And, and, and some of them written as much as a thousand years before Jesus was born. Now, any one of these predictions you could look at and say, well, it's mere coincidence. But when you see them one after another, after another, after another in such exquisite detail, you pretty soon you get to the point where you say, oh, God had something in mind all along. This didn't catch him by surprise. The cross was not his backup plan. This was what he intended to do to demonstrate his gracious love for his broken world and to provide for a remedy to the sin that we could never pay for. So that's what we're going to do together. It's going to be a different sort of a sermon. It's not going to be one where you walk away and say, oh, these are the three things I got to do to have a better marriage or to pray better. I'm not sure you'll walk away with a a to-do list so much as a to-pray list, a to-think list, a to-mull list. Sometimes we just need to sit under the profundity of God's Word. And I think this is one of those moments as we look ahead to this chapter in the story, the chapter on the darkest moment in human history. I invite you. I'm going to take you on a journey today. And I'm going to warn you right now, it's a tough one. I'm going to need you to to lean in on it because there's a lot of Old Testament. I want you to pay attention, maybe write notes to keep at it. But more to the point, I'm going to warn you, it's brutal. This is a PG-13 sermon. But I want us to understand exactly what it is that Christ endured, what the price is that he paid in order for him to pay our price for our sins. So I invite you to join me in this, all right? Here we go. First... Jesus had 12 disciples. We know that. These were his friends. And one of them, Judas, betrayed Jesus. Jesus said at the Last Supper, this is the way you'll know that the betrayer is going to be from this circle. He's going to take a piece of bread and he's going to dip it in a common cup with me. Probably a cup that held some sort of a sauce that was common at the time. So this is what Jesus said. This is how you'll know that the betrayer is in our midst. A thousand years before that, King David saw this, foresaw this, and he wrote, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41. We are told that Judas betrayed Jesus for a price, remember? He betrayed him for money. He betra- how, many, how much money? Do you remember? 30 pieces of silver, it was, the, it was the price of a slave. His friend betrayed the Lord of the universe for the price of a slave. After Jesus was arrested, though, Judas 
had remorse. He regretted what he had done. And so he went back to the chief priest that he had negotiated this with and, and told him he had changed his mind. He wanted to return the money and, and wanted them to call off the dogs. Of course, they had no interest in calling off the dogs. And Judas, in frustration, we are told, threw the 30 pieces of silver at their feet in the temple, in the house of the Lord, ran out and hung himself. And of course, this was now blood money. And so we are told that the priests wouldn't put it back in the treasury. They used it instead to buy a potter's field south of Jerusalem. You can still point to it today. 500 years before this occurred, Zechariah wrote these words. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. When Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, they took him up the hill to Caiaphas' house. You can still retrace those steps to this day. And while they held him, as the chief priest tried to figure out what they were going to do with him, he was brutalized. We are told that his hands were bound behind him, that he was spit in the face, that his head was covered, and then with a covered head, he was punched in the face repeatedly, and they would mock him by saying, if you're the prophet, if you're the Messiah, tell us who hit you. 300 years earlier, Isaiah wrote these words. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Isaiah chapter 50. When Jesus was taken before an illegally convened court, religious court, he remained silent. Even though they were bringing false accusation against him and they insisted that he speak up in his own defense, He stood there mute. He refused to do so. And we're reminded of what Isaiah predicted hundreds of years before. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus was next taken before the Roman ruler. His name was Pontius Pilate. Only Pilate had the authority to carry out a death sentence. And so they took him before Pilate, and Pilate examined Jesus. And it wasn't very long before he realized that he was an innocent man. He was not guilty of any of the things that he had been accused of. And he tried to free Jesus. He tried to talk the crowd out of their cruelty, their barbarism. But the religious leaders who were behind all of this and wanted Jesus gone got in amongst the crowd and whipped them up into a frenzy to the point that Pilate was frightened. And in one of the acts of great and iconic cowardice, we are told, Pilate ordered a bowl of water to be brought out to him. And you'll recall that he washed his hands in front of the crowd very dramatically and said, I wash my hands of this man's blood. His blood be upon you. And of course, they cried out, his blood be upon us and upon our children. Pilate ordered Jesus then to be scourged. It's a horrific uh, act of torture. It meant that Jesus was stripped entirely naked. And he was stretched with his arms bound usually around a pillar. He was stretched tight and then his back and his front also, including his genitals, 
were flayed with a lash that was comprised of many leather strands, all of them tipped in bone or stone or glass or metal. After 39 of those lashes, Jesus' body was one gruesome open wound. And to add pain and humiliation to all of it, they then draped that open wound of a body with a rough robe of royal purple. And they plaited together a a crown that was made of three-inch thorns that was pressed down upon his head. By the time they were done with the torture, Jesus was unrecognizable. 300 years earlier, these words were written by Isaiah. There were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus was led next to a place called the place of the skull, Calvary, a hill just outside of the gates of Jerusalem. And again, he was stripped naked, which meant that that robe, which had now clotted onto his body, was torn again from him. And he was laying down on the cross piece of this, of this uh, item of execution, this instrument of execution. And they drove three spikes into him, two of them through the wrist bones here, not here. If it was here, the weight of his body would have pulled it out. So he was spiked through here and through here. And then the last spike was driven with his feet turned sideways through his heel bone, both of them, into the cross. And then he would be lifted up to die one of the most brutally, wickedly uh, evil uh, acts of of execution ever imagined by man. Uh, Crucifixion was death by asphyxiation. As you hung there, your diaphragm began to paralyze, and you couldn't breathe. So the only way to breathe was to lift up on your tortured heels and take a gasp, and then you would hang back down, and once again, the diaphragm would be stretched out, and it was up and down, up and down for hours until finally you couldn't raise up anymore. As you hung on the cross, every bone you had was on display. And sometimes when the cross was dropped into the hole, it was such a violent jarring that the arms of the victim would be dislocated from their shoulders. A hundred years earlier, the psalmist, a thousand years earlier, the psalmist wrote, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. As Jesus hung dying, the soldiers cast lots for his valuable outer robe. They have divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Psalm 22. Jesus was crucified between two criminals, and Isaiah foresaw this. He was numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53. At one point, Jesus, in shock, 
from pain and from loss of blood, he cried out, I thirst. And we are told that they took wine vinegar and dipped a sponge in it and then lifted the sponge on the tip of a hyssop branch up to his lips. Psalm 69, they gave me vinegar for my thirst. Ordinarily, after many hours of torture, as a belated act of mercy, the soldiers would take a large bar of iron and they would come to each of the person who was being crucified and they would break his legs, thereby making it impossible for him to raise up and take a final breath. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. Psalm 34, he protects all my bones, not one of them will be broken. But to ensure that he was dead, the centurion pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and we are told that out poured a combination of water and blood, which doctors today would tell you suggest that his heart literally had broken. Psalm 22, 14, my heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. And finally, after Jesus was dead, he was taken down and buried by his wealthy friend, Joseph of Arimathea, in his own unused tomb. Isaiah 53, 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Sixteen predictions. There are more than a hundred of them. And even the words that Jesus uttered from the cross remind us of echoes of ancient scripture. Does this sound familiar? Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 31, 5. Into thy hand I commit my spirit. And then there's those poignant three words that were uttered by Jesus as recorded in John 19. Remember? It is finished. And you might say, Jesus, what do you mean as you gasp out those, those words finally? What are you saying? Are you saying it is finished? This act of barbarism is finished? The executioner's cruel work is finished? That you're about to draw your last breath and so your life is finished? That the, the word become flesh, the Lamb of God who was sent to the world, the eternal creator of the universe who, who, who deigned to allow his own creation to execute him, that work was just about done finally, mercifully, it is finished? Is that what you mean? Perhaps, but I dare say that when Jesus cried out those words from his parched and bloodied lips, it meant way more than that. When Jesus said, it is finished, I think this is what he was saying. It meant that God's plan of salvation, God's plan in place from the beginning, the plan to redeem a broken humanity through the sacrifice of the eternal Son, upon whom would be laid the the sins of the entire world. That plan was finished. This is the scarlet thread that we have been following for eight months. It was hinted at back in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent deceived Eve and received the curse of God. The curse said one day a Messiah will come. And this is what he was told. He, speaking to to the serpent, he will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. And surely as Jesus hung there, we see the heels and the wrists and the head and the spiked 
side that were, that were struck by the serpent. But in that moment of death, when the sinless Lamb of God died, surely you see the heel of the Messiah coming down and crushing the head of the serpent. It is finished. It was the plan hinted at when Abraham was told to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, upon Mount Moriah, the very mountain area where Jesus himself would one day be crucified. And as Abraham raised his knife to drive it into the breast of his son, he was held back by angels, and God himself provided the lamb as a substitute. It is the plan that was hinted by when we were in Egypt with the people of God on the night of Passover, when all of the people were told to take a perfect Passover lamb, a, a lamb without blemish, slay it and take its blood and spread it over the lintel and along the doorposts of the door of every Jewish family. Every family that was under the blood was saved. It is the plan that was hinted at when they were in the wilderness and they were attacked by a a horde of, of poisonous vipers. Moses took a brass serpent and he raised it up on a pole. And when the people lifted their eyes from the serpent to the, the brass pole, we are told that they were saved. This was always the plan. This is the echo of the plan down through the generations. And it was a plan exquisitely alluded to in that magnificent passage, Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For eight months we have caught glimpses of the scarlet thread. This entire sermon is scarlet. It is a flood of crimson that pours forth from the ancient prophecies fulfilled point by point by point by the arrest, the torture, and the death of Jesus Christ. The cross was always plan A for saving us. And when Jesus on the cross cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, the entire weight of the sin of the world came crushing down upon him. He, the perfect permanent, sinless Passover Lamb of God took all of the nastiness, all of the corruption, all of the guilt of the world upon himself. And that act of atonement made him so filthy that even his beloved Holy Father had to avert his gaze, turn aside from him, distance himself. It was the moment of utter dereliction. Jesus, who had always prayed to his daddy, his Abba, now couldn't even call out to Father. Instead, he says, my God, my God, have even you forsaken me? It was the darkest moment in human history. When pure good was immersed in pure evil. And if the story ends here, it is the greatest of tragedies. But it doesn't. As we will see soon enough. But not too soon. This week, this chapter, I want us to rest in the darkness of the cross. I want us to mull the depth of the love of God who would send his son to such a thing. 
Why should we mull this? Because this is the horrible price Jesus paid to save you and to save me. Everything you've just heard me describe in all of the gruesome detail, every evil, horrid thing that was done to Christ, he took it upon himself so that we might be spared it. It should have been me upon that cross. It should have been you upon that cross. But Jesus said to the Father, I love them. I will go. Let me go. That was the plan. That was always the plan. We hear so often, Lord, that Jesus died for my sins. He paid the price for my iniquity. That we treat it blithely. We skip lightly over what in fact was horrific. And as we are brought face to face with the price that you paid, Lord Jesus, in this moment, in these texts, and then we are reminded that for thousands of years this was the plan. We cannot help but wonder at the love of a God who would send his perfect and flawless son to a sacrifice to pay for his imperfect, flawed, and disobedient children. How can that make sense? And yet such is your great love for us, God the Father. Holy Jesus, such is your great love for us. And so before this wicked, wonderful cross, we bow in humility, in confession, in gratefulness and in adoration. What a great God you are. Thank you for your love. We say Jesus died for my sins. Jesus paid for my iniquity on the cross. I am covered by the blood. But we say it lightly blithely and then we enter into the darkness of the cross for a moment and we are reminded the price that was paid by the son of God to save us what kind of love is this what love is this The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the name of the Father of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all of God's redeemed people said, 